Hey everyone, so a YouTube viewer named Valinorian, I believe, suggested that I should cover something called the Gospel of Afranius. And I have to admit I had never heard of it, but it's a very interesting topic which I'm happy to cover, so thanks to Valinorian for bringing it to my attention. And it's a very mysterious sounding title, The Gospel of Afranius. It almost sounds like it could be the title of a Gnostic gospel or some esoteric text, but it's actually a counter-apologetic work written by a Russian atheist by the name of Kirill Eskov, I think it is. And by trade, I believe Eskov is not only a writer, but also a biologist and paleontologist, if I'm not mistaken. Apparently, at least part of the impetus for the work was the fact that Eskov's close friend, a poet and musician by the name of Sergei Kalugin, I believe it's pronounced, supposedly kept trying to convert him. But at the same time, it's also a response to the claims of American evangelical Christian apologist Josh McDowell, who had published a book entitled The Resurrection Factor back in 1981, I believe. McDowell views the New Testament as a historical document, and going from there, claims that the events of the New Testament, specifically or especially the resurrection, can only be explained via miracles and are thusly proof of God's direct intervention. And in the first part of his book, Eskoff provides a list of the specific hypotheses that McDowell seeks to dismiss, such as that the tomb wasn't really empty or that it was empty, but not by means of any miracle, but that perhaps the body was stolen or moved, possibly by the disciples, or that the post-resurrection or post-death uh, sightings of Jesus were either individual or mass hallucinations, that kind of thing. And a moment ago, I referred to the first part of Eskoff's book, and that's because the Gospel of Afranius is actually a two-part work. The first part is a non-fiction essay in which Eskoff tackles Josh McDowell's claims, and the second part is the actual novel. And the purpose of the novel is to demonstrate that it's at least theoretically possible to offer an explanation for the events of the New Testament that doesn't involve actual miracles or the supernatural. Me personally, I don't even think you have to go that far. If I thought the New Testament was convincing proof of God in and of itself, I'd be a believer. But I get what Eskoff is doing, and I think it's an interesting thought exercise, or it helps emphasize the point that there's always naturalistic explanations that can be offered. And so the novel is told from the point of view of the titular character, Afranius, who Eskov borrowed from another controversial Russian book, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. In both works, Afranius is depicted as a Roman military tribune who operates as a member of the ancient Roman equivalent of the secret police and answers to Pontius Pilate. I don't know if the fictional Afranius is modeled after a specific historical figure. I know there was a Roman consul named Lucius Afranius, but he died in the middle of the first century BC. 
But in Eskov's story, Afranius is in charge of something called Operation Ichthys, which I guess is somewhat clever, if not a bit on the nose. I recognize the name because I believe it's Greek for fish, and it's used to refer to the Christian fish symbol we've probably all seen. And the goal of Operation Ichthys is to establish a more pacifistic religious movement in an attempt to counter or tamp down the Jewish spirit of revolt. And it's funny, I've heard this idea kicking around for a while, that the Romans may have engineered Christianity in an attempt to combat military rebellion or anti-Roman sentiment among the occupied people of ancient Palestine or Judea. It's an idea that I've always taken with a large grain of salt, and this makes me wonder if, you know, perhaps at least in part, it can be traced back to this book. I don't know if Eskoff is the first to ever paint such a scenario. It wouldn't surprise me if others, perhaps even fringe scholars, had put forward conspiracy theories along those lines that the Romans may have engineered Christianity. Uh, I don't know. But in fairness, Eskoff never claims the premise of the book is true. He fully acknowledges it's a fictional dramatization, once again, to help make the point that you don't need the supernatural to explain the claims of the New Testament. But it could be the case that the premise of the story got around and kind of took on a life of its own and people ran with it, uh, which ironically is kind of how I picture Christianity perhaps kind of, you know, uh, gaining popularity in the beginning. But Judas plays a big part in the Gospel of Afranius. He's depicted as a kind of battle-hardened, self-serving double agent who goes by the codename Demiurge, which wasn't lost on me as someone who's really interested in Gnosticism. And of course, as mentioned on the show numerous times, in Gnostic belief or thought, the Demiurge was a kind of corrupt, lesser godlike being responsible for making the material world and trapping spirit and matter. Not a good thing from the uh, Gnostic perspective. And I don't know if any of you plan on actually reading Eskoff's novel, but heavy spoilers ahead. And just to offer a little backstory, I believe the book was originally self-published in 1995, after being rejected by numerous Russian publishers who feared it would be considered too controversial or draw the ire of the Russian Orthodox Church, it would eventually go on to be published by a number of professional publishing companies or houses. I think there's been five editions printed so far. And then last year, a free online version was released with the author's blessing, no pun intended, and that's how I actually got my hands on it, figuratively speaking, seeing as it's digital, but you get my point. I downloaded it as a PDF to my iPad, and I speed-read the thing uh, in its entirety last weekend. But the Afranius character chooses Jesus, one of many kind of itinerant or wandering preachers, to be the focus of Operation Ichthys, 
And it's interesting to note that, for the most part, the story paints a very kind of sympathetic view of Jesus. He's depicted as being very sincere and idealistic, and unaware that he's being used as a pawn in a Roman scheme. Afranius employs Judas, or Agent Demiurge, to infiltrate Jesus' group or sect, and help manipulate or orchestrate things from the inside. And so Judas becomes the group's treasurer, in a sense, and is in charge of their money box, and Afranius funnels money to Judas, which he uses to stage miracles, such as healings and the raising of Lazarus, etc. And it's implied, once again, that Jesus isn't in on the deception, that he thinks he's performing genuine miracles. And I thought it was kind of strange or interesting, but the author has Afranius mention in passing that there were a couple of healings performed by Jesus that seemed to be genuine and that they, meaning Judas and Afranius, weren't responsible for. If the author's goal was to kind of demythologize Christianity and stress that you don't need the supernatural to explain the events of the Gospels, I don't know why he'd suggest that some of Jesus' miracles may have been genuine. I was wondering if it may have been a nod to the fact that, at the time, so-called miracles were kind of a dime a dozen. There were a number of traveling wonder workers in the ancient world, such as Honey the Circle Drawer, for example, uh, who I believe um, was actually before the time of Christ. A little bit. I think Honey was 1st century BCE. So maybe that's a bad example, but there were even certain Roman emperors who were attributed with performing miracles. I believe, for example, the Emperor Vespasian, who was kind of the patron of the Jewish-Roman historian uh, Flavius Josephus, was said to have performed the laying on of hands or healing miracles, that kind of thing. And it's not that I think people were running around performing actual miracles back in the day. I think it's more likely that people's perception or attitude, you know, towards reality was probably somewhat different in a sense. The line between imagination and reality in people's minds may have been a, a bit more blurry in general, or people may have been more prone to believing in stories or rumors of miraculous deeds, etc. And even today, for example, and I'm trying not to get political, but say with QAnon, you had people who were rather easily convinced that JFK and his son were still alive and were going to return at an appointed time, something which is, you know, very reminiscent of the supposed imminent return of Jesus. And of course, every generation seems to think theirs is the time when Jesus is going to, you know, return, and that's been going on for 2,000 years now and still a no-show. But the crucifixion of Jesus isn't part of the character of Phranius's plan. To the contrary, he wants Jesus to stay alive, to guide this new religious movement. But things go sideways. As I mentioned in the story, Judas is a double agent, or is a triple agent. He's working for Afranius, he's embedded with the apostles, and then it turns out he's also working with the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. 
So just like in the Gospels, Jesus ends up falling into the hands of the authorities. Afranius had tried to help Jesus escape from the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe, but he, meaning Jesus, refused assistance, accepting the idea that he was meant to die. So, in an attempt to salvage Operation Ichthys, Pilate, and I almost said Pilates, um, also in the Gospels, there's no Pilates in the Gospels, you know what I mean, Pilate decides to invoke the Passover custom of releasing a prisoner in hopes the crowd will spare Jesus. And I'm not certain what the consensus is, but I was under the impression that there was no historical evidence for such a custom, so I found it a little strange that the author left it in, but maybe he did so because he's trying to work within the framework of the story as laid out in the Gospels. But in a further attempt to salvage the operation, they, Afranius with Pilate's consent, decide to stage a resurrection. The Romans remove Jesus' body from the tomb and replace it with a bundle of burial wrappings. Later, Afranius goes in the tomb and exits holding the wrappings, pretending to be irate. And it was kind of convoluted, but the wrappings were bundled up in the shape of a body in case the family or whoever came in the meantime. The hope being that a Jewish prohibition against coming into contact with a dead body would keep them from touching or testing it. And they also hire someone to impersonate Jesus, or an expert who makes someone else up to look like him for the sake of the post-resurrection appearances. And this was probably the most disturbing part of the book. As I said, it paints a fairly respectful or sympathetic picture of Jesus, so I was caught a bit off guard, but they behead Jesus' body so they can take the head and use it as a reference for the impersonation. And the whole thing about the impersonation, you know, struck me as a bit far-fetched, but it did make me think of the moments in the Gospels where after his death, Jesus is described as looking different somehow or not being recognized at first. So overall, I found the story enjoyable. Eskoff has a kind of casual writing style and injects a fair amount of humor. As far as the narrative goes, although I guess it's technically not impossible that something like the premise of the book may have happened, it feels somewhat forced and it's hard to forget while reading it that it is, you know, just a theory cobbled together, albeit intricately and imaginatively, by the author to serve as part of a thought exercise. But once again, I get what he's doing. He's trying to emphasize the point that you don't need a supernatural explanation, even while working within the framework of the gospel narrative. There's an addendum added on after the story ends by someone named Bogdan Veklich, or Veklich, I think it is. Um, as far as I can tell, he's a teacher and mathematician, I think. And he offers his musings on God and some possible naturalistic explanations for the existence of the universe, ideas from quantum physics that are reminiscent of Lawrence Krauss's A Universe from Nothing, and uh, you know, quantum tunneling and multiverse theory, the possibility of a steady-state universe, 
I'm not a theoretical physicist, but I believe things like the existence of a multiverse or bubble universes are still really a matter of speculation, for the time being at least, but are still very interesting and thought-provoking to consider. I try to be as honest as possible. I'm obviously skeptical of the supernatural faith claims of religion, but I also try to approach unproven scientific ideas with a due amount of skepticism as well. He also makes a point about deism near the end that I found pretty interesting. After discussing the aforementioned possible naturalistic explanations for the universe, he says the following. What actually matters is that if Jesus died on the cross and did not resurrect, Christianity and Islam are both false. Technically, I don't think Muslims believe Jesus died on the cross, generally speaking. I think at least some Islamic sects are in some Islamic schools of thought um, that they echo the Gnostic belief that he only appeared to die on the cross. Uh, but anyway... And that means the serious, universally, verbally commanding God, relevant in practice, does not exist. Whatever else might be true, for example, this has no bearing on the truth of Jainism or Deism. Again, although on the topic of Deism, if God is disinterested in the world, why did he bother creating it? The usual analogy is that to a deist god, our affairs are like the affairs of ants in an anthill are to you. But it doesn't work. You did not create the anthill. And it's a good point that I've never considered before. Deism refers to the concept of a god who kind of creates everything or gets the universe going and then takes an, uh, you know, a hands-off approach. As I've mentioned on the show before, a number of the founding fathers, including Thomas Jefferson, were deists or said to be deists. But yeah, why bother creating the world if you're not interested enough to tend to it? Is it like a science experiment? Maybe some mold left at the back of the fridge, or a kid with some sea monkeys who gets bored, but, <laughs> but I guess you could argue, you know, maybe this hypothetical deistic god has a wise or principled reason for not interfering. Not that I buy or subscribe to that, but I suppose you could try to argue that. Uh, but with that, that's kind of a weird place to end. But with that being said, I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you for listening.